The Bob Murphy Show, episode 168. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. First, I want to apologize for the delay in getting this out. I am responding to a recent dismissal of what's called the infinite banking concept or IBC by Dave Ramsey. And it took me a bit to get my ducks in a row. And uh, with Thanksgiving travel and whatnot, took a while to get this out. So I apologize for the delay. Hopefully it will be worth it to some of you. So let me just take a step back for a moment and explain that I wear many hats. So in addition to being the host and creator of the Bob Murphy show, I am also on the board of what's called the Nelson Nash Institute or the NNI. And Nelson Nash was the discoverer of what's called the infinite banking concept or IBC. So I do a bunch of work promoting and explaining IBC. And that's why I don't talk about it too much here on the Bob Murphy show, because I don't want to just be redundant that the people who want to get the IBC material from me, get it through the other channels. And so I don't want to just be redundant. However, on this one, I think Dave Ramsey attacking IBC. He said it was a scam and made some comments about why he thinks this is silly and nobody should take this seriously. It's a good teaching moment, right? That it's, even if you're not interested in IBC per se, I think just me playing for you what Dave Ramsey said about it and then me responding, if nothing else, will teach you something about finance and just, so it's a fun little exercise because let me be honest, at first when Ramsey leveled his accusations, I was like, huh, I totally see why he's saying that. And it does seem funny. And I had to think through, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. No, 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 this is what's going on here. So that's why I think it'll be a good learning exercise for all of us. So let me just make some disclaimers before I jump in here. First and foremost, I am not giving tax advice in this episode. Okay, so don't sue me. Clearly, before you take any action, you go and talk to somebody who's qualified to give you such advice and guidance. And in particular, I would recommend if you're interested in seeing how IBC can apply in your life, go to infinitebanking.org slash finder to find people who have graduated from the training program that I, along with Nelson Nash and Carlos Lara and David Stearns designed to train financial professionals and how to show the general public how to do IBC, right? So for people who get into Nelson Nash's books and materials and say, yep, I want to do this in my life. That's what this training program is for. And so if you want to find a graduate of that program who can give you advice and and show you how to do it, then go to, again, it's infinitebanking.org slash finder. Let me also just mention, as I'm saying this, I realize if you haven't heard this before, so What IBC is and what Nelson Nash discovered, it's a way to, quote, become your own banker. That's um, the version of the the title of of Nelson's famous book. And the idea is you use a dividend-paying whole life policy to build up cash value, which you can borrow against in the form of policy loans from the life insurance company. And you do that to finance your major expenses. So you're going to buy a car instead of getting financing from traditional lenders. Instead, you go to the life insurance company and say, hey, this dividend paying whole life policy that I've been paying into, and now I have this nice cash surrender value sitting there, go ahead and give me a loan with that as the collateral. And then you use that money to go buy the car with cash from the dealer's perspective. You're paying cash for the car, but you you got that money by borrowing it from the life insurance company with your cash surrender value in the whole life policy serving as the collateral for the loan. All right, so that that's what it is. I don't want to say more about it because then we're just going to get bogged down. This is going to turn into an exposition of IBC. If you don't even know what it is, in the show notes page, I'll give you some links to it. We have a whole video series on the foundations of IBC that Carlos Lara and David Stearns and I put up. And so you can go check that out. So that's at infinitebanking.org slash foundations. 
And again, all this stuff's going to be in the show notes page, bobmurphyshow.com slash 168. If you don't want to be jotting down these URLs, this stuff will all be listed there as well. All right, so that's the first caveat. Second one is in this video, I am going to be coming out harshly or strongly, let's say, against Dave Ramsey and what he has to say about this stuff. But I want to be clear, I am not intending this as a personal attack on Mr. Ramsey. In fact, as luck would have it, or divine providence, when I lived in Nashville, the church that I settled on and was going to before I moved away, guess who else was in, in that church? Dave Ramsey. And uh, in fact, one time I was coming out of the parking lot. And so, you know how in church, you know, Christians are really good and pious and, and church and, uh, you know, love your brother as yourself. You get out into the parking lot, all bets are off. That's normally how it is. But in this case, I was coming up and I thought I was going to have to wait. And this guy, you know, who could have gone, waved me on to let me go. And lo and behold, I noticed as I was driving, I was like, that's Dave Ramsey behind the wheel. So nice guy. Also, I think he's doing a lot of good, right? Americans are up to their eyeballs in debt, or many of them are. And Dave's message of, hey, get out of debt, whatever. I mean, it's, I'm glad he's out there telling people that, even though I don't agree with some of the nuances of his message. And I certainly don't agree with what he tells his listeners when it comes to cash value life insurance. I think he's just totally wrong. All right. But I'm glad that, you know, he's out there trying to tell people, hey, why don't you live below your means? You know, you know, it's better to be financially secure rather than have the latest car, you know, that sort of thing. And I appreciate, you know, him always ending. I haven't, I don't listen to his show that often, but when I would, you know, he would say things. People say, hey, Dave, how are you? Better than I deserve. And then that's because of, you know, he's saved and talking about the only way, because his thing is Financial Peace University. And so he will say, the only way for true financial peace is to walk with the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, right? So I appreciate that he's, you know, willing to share his faith like that and so on. All right. Having said all that now, let's get into this recent clip from Dave Ramsey. Again, if you want the link to the full thing, it'll be at bobmurphyshow.com slash 168. So here is Dave talking to somebody who calls into Dave's show asking about the infinite banking concept, or IBC. Let's take a listen. Jason is with us in Detroit. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the Dave Ramsey Show. Hey, Dave. Thanks for taking my call. How are you? Better than I deserve. How can I help? Well, I had a question for you. Um, I've been working with a financial advisor who's given me some advice, and I follow the show. I'm on Baby Step 7 currently, but he presented me with an idea that was a little outside the box, and I have term life insurance. I've been anti-whole life. But he presented me with this infinite banking concept. Jesus, you're um, kidding excess, me. Yeah, I have excess money in a savings account and looking to rebalance my portfolio to get it to work a little bit harder. Wow. But my risk tolerance is a little bit low. And he showed me how you can do this where you overfund the whole life policy. Yeah. You can access the money. You break even in year seven and then yeah. the dividend outruns what you put into it. Yeah, it's a it doesn't seem like a terrible idea in that regard, but I just wanted your, your take on yeah. why you know, that might not be the best well, way to go. The, the problem is that you, where it gets confusing it, is that, um, God, he's selling a dividend, a financial advisor. Is this, a, this is an insurance guy. Well, he's, he's both. They have, you know, it's one of the bigger companies, um, yeah, like Northwestern a, mutual or prudential. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. He's an insurance guy. He's not a financial advisor. Okay. I was about to okay. Say. So, because those are both mutual companies. Now, there are two types of life insurance companies, mutual and stock, okay? Likely, okay. you bought your term, unless you bought it from him, from a stock company. A stock company, stockholders own the insurance company. A mutual company, which is Prue and Northwestern State Farm is mutual, is the policyholders are actually the stockholders, okay? Okay. Yeah. So, when... The company makes a profit, the policyholders receive a dividend, as if they were a stockholder and received a dividend. Does that make sense? Yep, yep. Now, follow the math here. If you are the owner of the company, and you're also the customer of the company, and the only place the company gets money is from the customers that are owners, and they give you money from a profit, 
by definition, that means it's because they took too much from you as a customer. There wouldn't have been a profit otherwise. Okay. So the IRS has deemed, consequently, that mutual life insurance company dividends are not dividends in the true sense of a dividend, that instead they are, and this is the IRS's language, they are instead a refund of a deliberate overcharge. So they overcharge you in order to give you some money later to make you feel like you're making money off of them. And it's absolute hogwash. It's a pass-through. Mathematically, it's a pass-through. It's, ha- it's the way it has to be. It's the legal definition of the freaking company, and the IRS says so. Yeah, the infinite banking yeah. concept is, is old school, whole life, done poorly. You need a real financial advisor, not an insurance broker that's trying to sell you a load of manure. And so, yeah, the other thing is, is that your cash values that are sitting there all die with you. So whatever cash you put into this is equal zero at your death because they only pay the face value. Prue does not have a policy. Northwestern Mutual does not have a policy that pays more than the face value except universal life Bs, which are not in infinite banking products. And universal product B is where they charge more than they usually charge which basically buys the insurance so they can still keep your money is the way the math actually works on this. So you're dealing with one of the most expensive insurance products in the marketplace. If you're dealing with either one of those two companies, I would stay completely away from both of them. They're um, everyone in the financial field, except people that work for them. We all think they're a joke. All of us, anyone who's academically trained or has any kind of CFP or anything else, when they, when someone says they work for Northwestern Mutual, we just kind of laugh and go, yeah, right. You screw people every day. <laughs> yeah, so dude, you need to get away from them and you need to go get a real financial advisor that can help you do some real investing that takes into consideration your low risk tolerance. Okay. So there you have it. There's Dave and I, I had two clips there together talking about the return of premium and the connection to the tax code and also the uh, apparently dubious practice of the life insurance companies showing you this cash surrender value. And, but then if you die, you just get the death benefit. You don't get the cash surrender value too. Mm, that sounds fishy, doesn't it? All right. Now, before I go into the point-by-point refutation of this attitude or this critique coming from Dave. And I struggled before deciding whether or when I was thinking about, should I play this or not? But I think it is relevant, all right? Because it's not merely that Mr. Ramsey is saying, I respectfully disagree with where these people are coming from. No, no, no. He is quite clearly saying these guys are a bunch of frauds or morons. And anybody who does this is Looney Tunes and can listen to these nut jobs. We serious people over here understand just how fringe and and loony these guys. And so that's why, because he has that attitude, I'm going to play this next clip. So this is from an earlier episode of the Dave Ramsey show where someone called in who had heard about or whose father had heard about Peter Schiff talking about how the U.S. economy was on very weak foundations. And it turned out, of course, that Peter Schiff was giving people very prescient advice. This was right before the housing crash. And this person who was calling in a Dave Ramsey should have listened to Peter Schiff. But Dave said, no, 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 no. This guy is a kook. Don't listen. And plus, who is his father? And so, again, the point of me showing this is not to say, oh, Dave Ramsey was wrong once before, so he's probably wrong now. Rather, what I'm showing you is just because Dave is confidently telling someone, don't listen to these oddballs, they're weirdos, That doesn't mean Dave is right because he was this confident when he was telling someone, don't listen to Peter Schiff, who's warning you in 2006 and 2007 that a big crash is coming and Peter was right and Dave was wrong for mocking him. All right. So I just want to give you a flavor of that. Take a listen. What's Uh, up? My dad has done reading this book called Crash Proof. I don't know if you're familiar with it by Peter Schiff. By who? Peter Schiff. No. No. It's one that they've been talking about on uh, talk radio a lot. Anyway, this guy has got my dad convinced that the stock market crash is imminent and we need to pull our money out of, he's pulling his out of his 401k, all his investments, 
and he's trying to invest in gold and I guess overseas. He's saying to do, you know, euros because of the price of the dollar dropping and all that kind of stuff. My dad is sure that this is going to happen and is trying to convince us to do the same thing. I'm not educated enough. I've just started reading the book myself and I'm wondering, um, I'm sure it'll be hard for you to discuss it if you're not familiar with the book, but I'm wondering what your opinion is on that. Um, I'll try to be nice. Okay. <laughs> I think it's absolutely ludicrous. Okay. Absolutely ludicrous. Um, Amanda, how old are you? I'm 29. Okay. I'm 47, and I have seen books come out like this every year. Mm-hmm. As long as I was old enough to read. And, um, oh, the guy that wrote the books, Erwin Schiff's kid? Blake is telling me, oh, my gosh. I don't, I don't know. They've been talking about it on the Glenn Beck show. That's where my dad heard about Unbelievable. it. Unbelievable. Glenn put him on the air? Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, and, he's, and, he's, and he's recommending the book. No way. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, Erwin Schiff is a kook that tells people that the IRS is not valid, and he gets people put in jail every year because they don't pay their taxes. That's who this guy's dad is. Oh, wow. His dad's in jail huh. for not paying his taxes. Okay. And has had a anti-income tax movement, all based on the fact that he says the income tax is not constitutional. And he ran around telling everybody that for years and not paying his taxes till they put him in jail. Because it turns out it is constitutional. I don't like it, but it's constitutional. So this kid's dad is a nutburger, which okay. probably means the kid's a nutburger. Glenn Beck is not. Glenn's a friend of mine. Yeah. And I, I'm a little shocked. Right. That I, and usually what he says seems to me pretty smart. And, you usually know, he that. is. I guess he just bought off on this. Because let me tell you, here's the deal. Uh, what I was getting ready to say a minute ago is I'm 47 years old, and I have heard the end of the world predicted every year as long as I can remember. There are book after book after book after book that the end of the world is here, and the stock market's going to crash. And, um, you know, that it's just absolutely ludicrous. Could the stock market crash hypothetically? Yes, it could crash. Societies come to an end. Cultures completely come to an end. They do sometimes. Um, but but there is no indication uh, sufficient out there to, for for this kook's kid, who's probably a kook too, uh, to to say this. So there's lots of people who predicted the crash, though. Lots uh, of people. Right, right. Because Glenn has also had that guy on the. Um Walker, the one from the GAO that's talking about the same thing happening. And so I've been hearing it, it seems like, from a couple different directions, oh and I'm wondering gosh. if... I'm going to have maybe. to send Glenn an email. <laughs> um, anyway, but the... Because <laughs> I like his show, too. Yeah, so uh, but anyway, the uh, uh, anyway, the, the thing is that you just... The end of the world is not coming. Here's the thing, okay? In order for the stock market to crash, you have to visualize this as pretty... Here's a, a simple way to look at it. Okay. Okay. Home Depot is closed. Microsoft is closed, not just worth less, not just has less stores, is closed, okay? Uh, Ford and General Motors are closed. They don't exist anymore, okay? And Alcoa is closed. General Electric is closed. Whirlpool is closed. You starting to get the picture? Yeah, but when that all happens, won't it be too late? Let Amanda, mm -hmm. can you honestly, with any level of logic, in any corner of your imagination, imagine all of those companies closed? Well, it's hard to imagine, but I, but I would imagine that the people in the you know the late twenties probably weren't imagining it either. Well, to start with, the stock market is structured, and our capital system is structured completely differently with many more safeguards than it had in the 1920s and that brought us into the Great Depression. The stock market operates completely differently. The point is, is that there's always a profit of doom. There's always yeah. been a profit of doom. And in this case, it is, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous. I, I will just tell you this. I know a lot about the stock market. I'm not an expert, but I am trained in finance formally, and I have been an investor for many, many years. And... I, I do not own any gold, nor am I buying any gold. It's mm -hmm. a stupid investment. It's averaged 4.2% over the last 50 years with great volatility. It makes the stock market look like a walk in the park volatility-wise. It's all over the map. Scary. I don't own any gold. I'm not going to buy any gold. It's a dumb idea. I have all of the money that I own 
tied up in a bank account, in bank accounts at banks, guaranteed by the FDIC, invested in good growth stock mutual funds in the stock market, and in paid for real estate. And I am not moving a dime because of an idiot like Peter Schiff. Okay. The next thing I want to do, again, before diving into the nuts and bolts of this, is just to try to get you to see there's something not right here. That when Dave is not just saying, oh, I disagree with these people who are doing this IBC thing, or just in general, someone who tells you to to get a whole life insurance policy or what's the broader class is like cash value life insurance. And Dave is saying, no, that's a terrible investment. Don't listen to them. We, you know, all of us serious people in the financial sector know that that's just fraudulent. Again, I'm, I'm trying to, to show you that can't be right. It can't be just palpably absurd that anyone would consider this strategy or this this way of handling your finances. And so to, to make this point, what I want to do is point you to the history of the IRS's treatment, tax treatment of life insurance policies. And specifically, back in 1988, Congress amended the tax code such that what was called a modified endowment contract would get taxed a certain way if there wasn't this thing met called the seven pay test. All right, so the details aren't too important, but I want to just read to you. So here's, it's from Investopedia, right? I, I went to grab just a standard thing that, you know, this isn't coming from a life insurance company that's pushing whole life policies. This isn't coming from, uh, you know, the Nelson Nash Institute. This is just Investopedia. I was trying to find a generic treatment of this historical episode. So the title of this is Avoiding the Modified Endowment Contract Trap. It's by Mark Cusson, updated November 10th, 2019. So I'll just read a little bit of this. And of course, if you want the article, it'll be at bobmurphyshow.com slash 168. So he says, cash value life insurance has always provided consumers with a tax-free avenue of growth within the policy that could be accessed at any time for any reason. But Congress has placed limits on the amount of money that can be put into these instruments, and all cash value policies are now subject to what is the seven-pay test, which limits the tax benefits of cash value withdrawals. Policies that fail this test are now classified as modified endowment contracts. Okay, and then, so that's kind of like the summary, and then now the section entitled History of Modified Endowment Contracts or MEX, M-E-C for Modified Endowment Contract. So incidentally, if you hear someone say like, oh, be careful you don't MEC the policy, that's what they're saying. They're saying don't put in so much money up front that you fail the seven pay test and hence lose the favorable tax treatment. Okay, so here's again, now this is the historical section. I'll just read a little bit more of this, folks, then we'll get back to the, to the main event. Tax-free growth is one of the chief advantages of cash value life insurance, and therefore many life insurance carriers tried to take advantage of this feature in the late 1970s by offering single premium and universal life products that featured substantial cash value accumulation. Policy owners could then withdraw both the interest and principal as a tax-free loan as long as the policy did not lapse before the owner's death. Of course, this strategy effectively allowed the policy to function as a large-scale tax shelter. However, Congress did not agree that life insurance should be used in this manner and therefore passed the Technical and Miscellaneous Revenue Act of 1988, or TAMRA. That's the, you know, the acronym. This act created the MEC. Before this law was passed, all withdrawals from any cash value insurance policy were taxed on a first-in, first-out, or FIFO basis. This meant the original contributions that constituted a tax-free return of principal were withdrawn before any of the earnings. But TAMRA... Again, that's the Technical and Miscellaneous Revenue Act of 1988, placed limits on the amount of premium that a policy owner could pay into the policy and still receive FIFO tax treatment. Any policy that receives premiums in excess of these limits automatically becomes a MEC. Okay, so I'm just showing you this is the way Investopedia describes what happened. And so let me also just mention very quickly, that thing talked about universal life. So that's true, but to be clear, IBC, the stuff Nelson Nash developed, or the concept that Nelson Nash developed and that we talk about at the Nelson Nash Institute, just uses whole life policies. We do not use universal life, all right? So just be clear. I don't want anyone to get confused by that. IBC, Nelson does not think using universal life is a, is a good idea. He thinks it's a bad idea if you're doing IBC, just to be clear, all right? But that history, so here, here's my point. Why, why did I go down memory lane there? 
So again, what were they saying happened? Is too many people were using these things. It was calling it as a tax shelter. And more specifically, in terms of the timeline, because here it was saying stuff started happening in the late 70s and then Congress acted in 88. Well, something else that happened was there was the Tax Reform Act of 1986, which, generally speaking, brought down marginal income tax rates, but eliminated you know, deductions and exemptions, right? So closed loopholes. So the theory behind that was we don't want Congress picking winners and losers, just raise revenue by having the lowest possible rates on the broadest tax base, and then you know, don't have Congress giving certain favors to different industries like real estate or whatever. So it eliminated a lot of the advantages for investing in real estate. And a lot of people believe the 1986 Tax Reform Act helps explain, you know, what happened with real estate is the tax shelters or the favorable tax treatment of certain real estate structures was taken away. Okay. And then there was the big stock market crash in 87. And so a lot of rich investors after that crash were like, geez, we can't go in real estate anymore. Stock market's risky now. That scared the heck out of us. What do we do? And so a lot of them were advised, look at, there's these, you know, you can just write a big check for a single premium paid up life insurance policy and you get a bunch of cash value right away. And look at this, the thing grows tax-free you know, in terms of the internal growth of this thing, it's not, you know, that's not treated as capital gains or subject to income tax. So long as you handle it a certain way, I want to be clear about that. There's, you got to do it right. And if you need the money, you just borrow against it, right? Because a loan is not income, right? So if you have this asset that's accumulating, this life insurance policy, you wrote a big check to the life insurance company, they bought you some, uh, what's called paid up insurance. So now it's just rolling, doing its thing and it's growing, because they take your premium and they invest it in financial assets and all this thing is growing. And if you need the money, you just go to the life insurance company and say, I want to use that as collateral, give me a loan. And they say, sure thing. And that's all contractually spelled out, by the way, too. Right? So they know they're going to get, you're going to get the loan. You don't got to get a credit score or anything like that because the life insurance company itself is guaranteeing that collateral. Right? So it's real easy to get a loan against that thing. Much easier than like going to a commercial bank and getting a home equity loan. Right? And so, they were, yeah, this does make sense. So, yeah. So more and more investors were doing that such that finally Congress had to say, whoa, whoa, whoa we got we to gotta tap the brakes on this. There's too many people putting too much money in these cash value life insurance policies. And that's why they changed the tax code in 1988 to limit this or, or to, you know, to make it, to put more constraints in place so that you couldn't just dump all the money in at once. You kind of had to spread it out over seven years at least. Right, that's the intuitive way of thinking about what happened. So my observation is, does it really make sense when Dave Ramsey is telling you that this is the stupidest thing you can do with your money when so many rich people were doing it that it was hurting tax revenue and Congress had to change the tax code to limit the ability of people to do this? Does that, does that really mesh with what Dave Ramsey's telling you? I don't think so. Okay. Then any money you're getting in the form of dividends is obviously money that just came out of your pocket originally. They're just giving you some of your own money back. And again, and he's saying, this isn't just me, Dave Ramsey, saying that. That's literally how the IRS treats it. And that's where these ostensible tax advantages or favorable tax treatment comes from. That's why it's not taxed when you get dividends. And by the way, folks, I'm going to explain the nuances of that. Once you hit the cost basis, then the IRS does tax it, just to be clear. And we'll see that more in a minute. And so, Rams, you, you see where he's coming from, right? Like, this is, you just get your own money back. This is crazy. Are you kidding me? Some people are trying to tout that as a, as a special feature of these things. Oh my gosh, he's rolling as he actually took the Lord's name in vain. He was so astonished that somebody would have the audacity to, to cite this as a, as a benefit of these things, right? Okay, so like I say, at first when you hear that, it's like, oh yeah, that does seem kind of fishy, doesn't it? Because there, there is, like I say, a grain of truth in what he's saying, but I had to think it through. No, 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 this, this is wrong, okay? Or the implications he's drawing from these statements is, are definitely incorrect. All right, let me say it in words, and then I'm going to walk through a numerical example. All right, so in words, the way to see that something is not right or that at best what Dave is saying is very misleading is to make the following observations. With a life insurance policy you can reach a point at which the dividends 
every year that you're earning as the policyholder are higher than the premium you paid that year, okay? And so that right there should show you this is a lot more sophisticated and nuanced than simply you went into Best Buy. Actually, let me, let me do it this way. Back when I first got into this stuff, I went ahead and got licensed in life insurance in Tennessee just because I wanted to see like, you know, from the agent's perspective, what do you, what, you know, how, how does this work? So I'm not in production myself, but at the time I did go ahead and, and get licensed just to see what it was like and, you know, what the curriculum was and so on. And I, and I took a class, you know, where they coach you on how to, how to make sure you pass this test and how to study for it. And, I, and the guy had a good analogy to the, illustrate this concept. And he said, uh, so it's true when you get what are called dividends, when you own, let's say a whole life policy, that so long as you haven't yet hit the cost basis, it's true, th that's not treated as taxable income. I, again, so long as you haven't violated the MAC rule and stuff like that. Right? So for all this stuff we're talking about, if you do it right. And the way he explained that was he said, because the IRS is saying that's just a return of premium, that the life insurance company, they took more premium from you than it turned out they needed to in order to hit their targets and so they, they said, oh, we were, you know, we were too conservative. We took too much premium. So here, have some of your premium back. And he's saying, so that's not treated as taxable income. And the analogy he used, he said, it's like if you went into Best Buy and there was a TV that was $100 and you went up to the register and you paid $100 and then you're walking out to the parking lot and the manager runs out and says, oh, sir, sir, sorry, that item was actually on sale. It was only $85 today. So here's $15 back. We overcharged you right? You, you gave us a hundred, but actually it should have rung up at the register as 85. And that was our mistake. So here's, here's $15 back because we overcharged you. And so the guy teaching this, you know, study class for us to how to take the test said, you wouldn't have to go on your taxes and report that as $15 in net income that you would then pay income tax on, right? Because that's not income. That's just, you were overcharged and they gave you a partial refund. And so he's saying, likewise, when the life insurance company on something like a whole life policy, charges you a premium in order to hit certain objectives. And then after they review how the year went, realize, oh, we didn't need to, uh, in a typical year, let's say we were too conservative. We took more money in from our policyholders than we needed to, to end up where we wanted to be. And so now we've got, again, what's called a divisible surplus. So let's go ahead and give this back to the policyholders according to certain principles of distribution. And that's what the dividends are. That's where the dividends come from. And since that's the way they're framing it, right? Because it's not a, a mutual fund, right? The point of you investing funds into a life insurance company, it's not because they're money managers and they're going out and buying assets to give you returns. It's, it's a life insurance policy, okay? That's, that's partly why, you know, it's treated this way. And so, again, since they technically took more money from you than they needed to ex post, they realized... They're just giving you some of your money back, right? And that's why it's not treated as taxable income, just like the $15 refund of your, the price you paid for the TV set at Best Buy would not be treated as taxable income, right? So that's the way the guy explained it. Okay, and that's what Dave Ramsey's doing here. Okay, so that analogy works to partly get the, the concept across to understand why the IRS treats it that way. But if you then conclude... Oh, see, so there's really no benefit to doing this because they're just giving you your own money back and anybody thinking that this is some sort of source of wealth for you is nutty. That's what's the mistake. And so again, I'm, I'm trying to now show you why just thinking of it narrowly in those terms, you're missing out on a lot, all right? And so again, one thing that can happen is in these policies, you can reach a year where the dividends have grown such that in that particular year, the dividend you get from the life insurance company is bigger than the total premium you paid. So thinking in terms of like the Best Buy analogy, that would be like you paid $100 for the TV, you're going out to the parking lot and the manager rushes out and says, sorry, sir, sorry, we overcharge you for that. Here's $150 back. And so someone's saying, ah, see, so you're just getting your own money back. Right there, that would be a little bit weird. Okay, so another way of seeing this is you can have a life insurance policy that becomes paid up at a certain date. Like for example, you can buy a life insurance policy that's paid up at 65. And so that means is contractually, you pay premiums every month or every year, whatever it is. But then once you turn 65, now the policy's paid up. 
And so contractually, you don't owe premium payments anymore. You still have the coverage in force. And so if you die, you're still going to, or your beneficiaries are still going to get the money, but you no longer contractually have to keep kicking in premium payments to keep that thing in force. It just is the way it's contractually designed. And of course, they adjust the numbers and everything to make sure that makes sense from their point of view. But that's a standard design. So in such a policy, if you're chugging along, the dividend payments grow over time. And even after you hit 65 and now your premium payments go to zero, still year after year, you're getting dividend payments. In fact, the dividend payments keep growing year after year, typically. So again, does that line up with the way Dave Ramsey was motivating it for you? right? Wouldn't you have thought in any given year at best, the dividend they're going to give you is only a small portion of the total premium they took from you, right? Because the way Dave Ramsey was framing it, I mean, the only place the life insurance company is getting money is from you and people like you. So if all of you are now simultaneously the customers and the owners of these mutual companies, then how are you you know, getting money on net, you can't because there's giving some of your own money back, right? So you see how, wait a minute, something's not right there. If there can be years where you pay zero in premium and they're giving you ever-growing dividend payments year after year. So again, Ramsey's clearly leaving something out of the conversation here. Now, you might say, okay, so the time element must be important. And yes, it is. That's one way of thinking about what's going on here. But let me throw another curveball at you. In certain policies, depending on the structure, it can also be the case if you live long enough, you reach a point not only where year after year, you're getting more that particular year in a dividend payment than you paid in premium that year. It can also be that if you look back over the whole history of the policy since you opened it, the total amount of dollars that you have been paid as dividend payments is larger than the total number of dollars you paid in as premium payments. Right, So it's not merely that, oh, in case you were trying to reconcile the last two things I said by thinking, oh, well, maybe they charged you a lot in earlier years and then they dribble it out to you over time. You know, So maybe you spent $1,000 on the television set and then the manager was giving you money distributed over a few weeks. And so in any given week, maybe you're getting more money from Best Buy than you paid in, but oh, lifetime. No, that's not the solution to the conundrum because again, in one of these policies, it is entirely possible you live long enough and you elect to receive the dividend payments that you would have gotten more in dividend payments than you paid in in premium over the entire lifetime of the policy, right? So how does that line up with what Dave Ramsey is saying? Like, come on, you're the customer and the owner. They're just giving you your own money back. This is a scam, right? How could they be giving policyholders back more money than they paid in if, if what Dave said is the whole story? Let me just clarify something. At that point, if that does happen, the IRS does start treating it as taxable income because they're saying, okay, there's no plausible way in which we can view this as a return of premium if they've already given you back all the total premium you've paid in. And with all this stuff, by the way, they don't, they don't take account of the time value of money. It's just a historical basis in case that's thrown some of you, okay? So what's going on? Well, here's what's going on. The life insurance company, yes, you're the customer. The only revenue they get in terms of customers buying in is from you as a policyholder, premiums, but they don't put that in a drawer with your name on it. They go out and buy assets with it, financial assets that throw off you know, income or they have capital gains. And so that's another way that dollars come into the coffers of the life insurance company with which they can then pay out dividends. All right, so what Dave has done here would be as goofy is saying, oh, Dave, you like, you know, uh, I, watch this. Here, I'm going to blow up Dave Ramsey's world. Ready? I'm going to prove that his total money makeover scheme is a scam. Dave Ramsey says that you should put your money into a mutual fund, right? But think about it. Who's the customer of the mutual fund? You are, and people like you. The only place the mutual fund can get money is from people like you putting it in. So how can it possibly be that by the time you retire, they're going to give you more money than you put in? They're just giving your own money back. You see how goofy that is? Well, that's what Dave Ramsey, now in fairness, again, because there's an intermediate period where the IRS even treats it as a return of premium. I get how Dave could have fallen into that trap, but it's the same basic thing, all right? So in terms of the IRS's treatment, by the way, in case you're getting confused, the reason for the different treatment, and I'm not a tax expert, but I believe this is the gist of it, 
is, again, the, what's the function of what's going on? When you're investing $1,000 in a mutual fund, and then the, ne you know, the next year they, have, they give you $100, that's like a 10% return on your money. And the function of you giving them the money is for them to go invest it and then give you the earnings. And so that's why right away that $100 they give you, that first $100 is treated as taxable income. Whereas with the life insurance company, what you're doing is you're buying life insurance. And so that's, and they, they yes, they deliberately overcharge you in the sense that they want to make sure they have enough there to pay off death benefits and whatever, if there's a bad year and more people die than would be expected. Or if the portfolio does worse than would be expected, they're really conservative. They want to make sure they have enough there. So they charge more than they think they'll need to. And then once the dust settles and they say, okay, we're doing all right, everybody. All right, let's go ahead and give some of that money back, right? That's what they're doing. And that's why it's treated differently. But in terms of, you know, the way Dave Ramsey was trying to blow it up, say, oh, they're just giving your own money back because the only place they get money is from you. Well, no, they go out and take that money and buy assets with it. So that's where they also, quote, get money from, okay? Now we're reached the point where I'm going to go through a numerical example. So... For some people, this is going to be the best part of the episode. For other people, they're not going to care about this. They're going to skip through it. If you're someone who just likes realistic examples based on actual life insurance policy illustrations, then you can check out the book that I wrote with Nelson Nash and Carlos Lara, The Case for IBC. We have real-world policy illustrations in there that exhibit the features I'm talking about here. Or what I'm going to do right now is you can have a very simplified version that we can do in Excel, all right? So as an economist, that's how we do things is when we want to understand a phenomenon, we usually come up with a simple thought experiment or a mental model where we kind of assume away a lot of the complexity of the real world to just isolate the relevant thing that we're trying to study in the particular discussion. And so here, what I'm going to show you in a minute is an Excel spreadsheet that makes some strong assumptions that's not realistic, but yet isolates what's going on so you can really see and understand if you care to, oh, this is what's going on when the life insurance company deliberately overcharges and then gives you a return of premium going along in the form of what's called dividends. And you can really see it and just isolate that element. You can understand why what Dave Ramsey was saying is wrong. Okay, so again, if you want to see a real world life insurance policy illustration and me narrate it or discuss it, you can either get the book, The Case for IBC, or one of the illustrations from that book is what I go over in the video series, The Foundations of IBC. So again, that's infinitebanking.org slash foundations. If you want to see me do it over there, I'm not going to do it here because I've already done it over there. What I'm going to do here now is go through a simplified thing, but that you can do it at home in Excel too if you want to play around with it just to see how this thing works. That's, that's why I like doing these ones in Excel is because you can do it yourself. And so you know exactly what's going on. It's not a black box where you just got to take my word for it. Okay, so for the purposes of this example, again, I, I need to keep the number of moving parts down to a minimum just so you understand what's going on. There's a lot in here, or there's a lot not in here that's true in a real world life insurance policy. So for those of you who are watching on YouTube, you should now be able to, to see screenshots of what I'm looking at here. And if you're not watching the YouTube version, you probably want to at some point because it's going to make a lot more sense if you can see these numbers. So again, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 168 to see the YouTube version. Okay, so what I'm assuming in this scenario is that this policy, it's paid up at 65. And here's the thing that's really unrealistic, but I just, I weighed the pros and cons and I think this is the easiest way to get principles across just to show what's wrong with Ramsey's uh, critique. The actuaries in the home office somehow magically know that this particular person is going to die at age 121, right? So this person's going to live up through the end of age 120 and then immediately upon turning 121, it's going to drop dead, All right? And that's just a gimmick I'm using to keep the math simple. So this way we don't have to include anything about mortality assumptions. We don't have to be implicitly charging for life insurance, like a value at risk and so forth all along the way, because that just complicates the analysis. All right. So just keep in mind what you're seeing here is not exactly how the life insurance companies do it in reality. 
this is an easier problem to solve, but still this will get across the essence of what's going on with when they quote deliberately overcharge. Okay, so just so you understand my notation, if you're looking at this thing, CSV stands for cash surrender value, EOP means end of period. And then BOP means beginning of period, All right? So what's going on is from, and I'm assuming this person's age 30, right? So in this Excel file, it starts at age 30 and it goes down to age 120. And since it's a paid up at 65 policy, the premium payments go, they're all the same. So it's a level premium. You pay the same premium from age 30 all the way up through age 65. And then from age 66 on, the premium payments go to zero. Then that's what it means to be a paid up at 65 policy if a 30-year-old's taking it out, all right? And the other thing we assume is that this is going to have a face death benefit of $500,000, okay? So what this policy does, it's, it's for $500,000, saying when the person dies, $500,000 gets paid, you know, to the named beneficiaries. And so what I had to do to figure out the premium, oh, and the last thing is, let's assume the life insurance company says conservatively, we're going to earn 3% on our investment portfolio. That's what's going to happen in this, okay? And so the life insurance company now turns to the actuaries and says, how much do we need to charge on a you know, level premium policy where every year it's the same number as what the premium is such that at the end of age 120, the end of the period, we'll have $500,000 in assets rolling over at 3%. What do we need to charge each year to make that happen? And they tell them, oh, $1,510, 1510 is the magic number. And how did I get that? Just through trial and error. So if you're doing this yourself in Excel, you just type in a number from the first cell and then you copy it down through years 31 to 65 so that when you're playing around with it, you just got to change the number in the one cell and then it automatically updates for the rest of them. And then you just keep checking. So I kept tinkering with it. Up oh, 1600 is too high, up oh, 1400 is too low. Tinkering with it to get the cash surrender value under the 3% column was as close to 500, but at least 500,000 as I could get it using whole dollars. And so the end, you can see there, it's actually 500,150 is what I ended up with. So that's if I made it, the premium go down by $1, then it's less than 500 grand. All right. So that's, that's where the 1510 is coming from. It's just through trial and error. I landed on that to get the death benefit that I wanted. And again, in this unrealistic example, we know for sure the guy's going to live until the end of age 120. Okay, so that's where those numbers come from. And the reason we're calling this, these numbers under the 3% heading, the cash surrender value, is because if you think about it, the life insurance company is taking in premium payments, investing in assets that they're all rolling over every year at 3% annually. And so at the end of period each for each of these years, that's in a sense, how many assets or the market value of the assets the life insurance company has earmarked to quote, back up this particular policy, if that's the way you want to think about it. So for example, at age 45, those 1510 premium payments rolling over at 3% have grown to at the end of age 45, 31,350. And so if we assume away all overhead costs and stuff like that from the life insurance company's point of view, they could afford to say, at this point, if you surrender the policy, we will just give you 31350 as the cash surrender value because that's how much we would you know, be holding, in a sense, backing up your policy, chugging along to reach the five hundred grand mark by the time you reach it, age 121. All right? So that's what that is. And they could even contractually guarantee that. They can say with this policy, when we, you sign it and you're on the hook now to give us $1,510 a year in premium payments, we are agreeing to these cash surrender value targets for each of the years listed. And so again, for example, at the end of, at the end of age 45, if you surrender the policy at that point, we'll give you 31350 if you want to collapse the policy at that point. So the life insurance company to make those promises and to be on the hook contractually is assuming oh yeah, we're going to be able to earn 3% a year on our, on our portfolio. Now, let's introduce some more complexity here. Suppose in practice, the life insurance company actually earns 5% on its assets per year. And in fact, they knew they probably would, but they didn't want to guarantee it. 
And so that's the distinction here. They wanted to be very conservative and say, we guarantee we're going to earn you at least 3% per year. And again, folks, I'm just making these numbers up. This is not a real world illustration. I'm just doing this to keep the, the numbers nice. So again, if you want to see a real world illustration with actual contractual guarantees and then projected dividends, you would look at the case for IBC or the example I walked through in the foundations video. All right. But for this, again, we're just keeping, I'm just picking numbers of 3% and 5% just because they seem nice. That's what, that's where those numbers come from. All right. So suppose in reality, like I say, the life insurance company thinks actually in a given year, we'll probably earn 5% on our assets, but we don't want to promise that. Let's just promise we're on the hook contractually for the cash value, the internal growth to grow at 3% internal rate of return on the premium payments. But will actually probably earn 5%. So if that's the case and that actually happens, this Excel file is now showing how the dividends would be paid. So if you go to the first year here, so age 30, if you take the 1510, that rolls over at 3%, you, you know, so the premiums are paid at the beginning of period. And so then by the end of the, of the year, that 1510 will have grown to 1,555, growing at 3%. If instead it grows at 5%, then you end the year with 1586. And so the difference there is roughly $30, right? If it actually grows at 5% rather than three, that 1510 first year premium ends up giving you about $30 more. And so the life insurance company says at that point, oh, we're only on the hook contractually to have 1555 available in case this person surrenders the policy because we were assuming very conservatively that the funds would grow at 3%. Since in fact, they grew at 5%, we're now sitting on 1586. So we can go ahead and give a $30 refund to this person. Incidentally, in case you're wondering why isn't it 31, it must just be because of rounding, that that's why the Excel is doing that. Okay? Because these, these cells are getting rounded to the nearest dollar. So that's where that $30 dividend payment is coming from. That's what's going on. They're saying, we're going to give enough we're just going to give back to the customer such that we're retaining what we need to to stay on target with our very conservative guaranteed projections of assuming 3% growth, okay? Let me mention one thing I forgot to say before. In a typical IBC policy, you don't want to take the dividends out usually, at least certainly not up front, okay? I'm just doing this here to show you how the dividends work and what does it mean, all right? But so you wouldn't in practice probably want to be taking the dividends out. You'd leave them in to buy more life insurance and have the thing grow. But I'm not doing that here just because we want to isolate these principles. Okay, so that keeps happening. Let me just pick a different year. So by year 40, for example, again, under the 3% column, if they just kept taking the 1510 every year and let the thing roll over at 3%, that will have grown to 19,920 by the end of year 40 or age 40. On the other hand, if they were siphoning the dividends off each year, so this is to be important to make sure you get this. They're not letting the dividends roll over internally. We're assuming in this example that the person takes the dividends as cash and goes and buys ice cream with it or whatever, okay? So each year, the excess, the difference between the 5% and the 3% for that year is, is what's generating the dividend, okay? And so... At the end of age 40, it's 19,920 in the 3% column. The 5% instead is 20,307. So that's a difference of 387. So see the dividend that year would be $387, much higher than the initial 30 year, or $30 in year one. Now, again, I want to be clear here. That 387, where is it coming from? It's simply coming from the fact that in year 40 or age 40, what happens is they take the 17,830 that was the end of period cash surrender value from age 39, they add, you know, right? So that's, that's how much the guaranteed cash surrender value was at the end of age 39. That's what the life insurance company is retaining in assets in a sense of backing up the policy. Then they add to it the 1510 at the beginning of year 40 from the new premium payment. And then with those two numbers together, then roll over at 3%, and that's where you get the 19,920. Instead, if you took the 17,830 from the end of you know, age 39, added the 1510 new premium at the start of age 40, 
and let that roll over for a year at 5%, it instead would have grown to 20,307. Okay, so this is, I just wanna be clear, all this this dividend number, the surplus or the, the dividend, yeah, the dividend is capturing is the difference in one year growth. This is not capturing the entire history of rolling over at 5% rather than 3%. Because again, every year, the gain on the 5% side is like wiped away. We're, we're siphoning it off and doing a dividend payment and that leaves the system in this example. you Again, you would not do that typically if you were doing IBC. You'd want to keep the dividends inside to, to grow the thing. But here, we're assuming every year the dividend is removed. And so, you know, the assets get knocked back down just to what the guaranteed side was each year. But still, because you've got this growing existing stockpile of cash surrender value from the previous period that you're then supplementing with the new incoming premium, the difference of that growing at 3% versus 5% keeps getting bigger every year. So that's why the dividend keeps growing every year. Okay, I hope that's clear. But so that's a subtle point, by the way. And that was something I myself had to think through just to make sure I was thinking about it right. And that's, again, one of the reasons I myself built this little Excel example. And I thought, well, if it helps me think it through, maybe it'll help people out there. Okay, so now that we understand the structure of this, let's just focus on some key items. So notice by age 60, with this example, the dividend has finally caught up with the premium payment. Right, so in age at age sixty, it just so happens that the annual dividend that year is one thousand five hundred and ten. Where does that number come from? Well, it comes from the fact that the cash surrender value, the guaranteed side, that the, under the three percent rule, is seventy seven thousand seven sixty nine. Whereas if you assume five percent growth, then at the end of age sixty, they'll have seventy nine thousand two seventy nine. The difference between those two numbers is round with rounding fifteen ten. All right, so this is the point at which they're giving you all of your money back that year. And then in subsequent years, in particular from ages 61 to 65, you see the dividend payment continues to grow for the reasons we said. And so those years, the dividend is higher than the premium payment. And then what's really amazing is from age 66 on, the premium payment drops to zero contractually. And yet you can see the dividend keeps growing. And so you, you need to keep that in mind. Wait a minute, how can this be? How can I be getting a growing dividend year after year when the premium payments are zero if all the dividend is, is them giving me some of my money back that they deliberately overcharged me on? So you can see that nuance, okay? And then the last item I'll mention is in this particular example, at age 76, that's the point it, which even the lifetime cumulative dividend is now higher than the cumulative premium up to that point. Specifically at that point, you paid in in premium. And again, we're not doing time value of money. We're just saying every year you look at how much you paid in, you just add those things up somewhat naively without taking a cost into account interest. And so lifetime, you've paid in 54360 You can call that the cost basis of the policy. And at that point, if you've been all along sucking the dividends out year after year, you would have withdrawn 54578 So again, at that age 76, that's the crossover point. From that year forward, if you keep taking dividend payments, you've taken more dollars out of the policy than you ever put in, lifetime. And so again, that should underscore something screwy if Dave Ramsey has convinced you that these dividend payments are merely them giving you your own money back. Okay? Now, Last thing I'll mention before we move on to something else here is I, I want to reiterate the way this is treated in terms of taxation. Again, if, if you follow the rules, you haven't met the policy and everything is you can go ahead and take those dividend payments and they're not treated as taxable income up until age 76. If you take those dividend, you know, so the year that year, the dividend is 2,645. If you were to take that thing, or at least the full amount, because it's only a portion of it that crosses the, the threshold, then the IRS is going to start treating that as taxable income from that point forward. Because they're going to say, well, you've now taken out more dollars than you put in. So the old rule that we were using to try to explain why we're not treating as taxable income, that clearly doesn't apply anymore. And so that's, that's why they would start at that point. So what a lot of people will do if they want to minimize their tax liability is they will, 
you know, bulk up a policy early on, then the thing grows, and they will at some point when they want to start drawing income from it and having the thing throw off dollars, let's call it, just to, to be agnostic, because that really, depending on which perspective you look at, then they will start taking out dividends rather than letting them grow internally. But again, it's not treated as taxable income because of the reasons we've already discussed. And then when they hit the point at which it would be treated as taxable income, then they can switch. And so at age 76, once they take out, you know, they might say, just give me some of that 2,645 is a dividend, leave the rest in. And now if they still want to draw dollars out, what do they do? They start taking policy loans. Okay. Because again, a policy loan is not taxable income. And, and these things, they're not, they're not tax loopholes. This isn't some crazy thing designed to just benefit the life insurance sector. There, there's reasons for this. I already explained to you why return of premium is not treated that way. And now here, a policy loan, again, borrowing money, you go and borrow $10,000 from your uncle, that's not taxable income. That shouldn't be treated the same way as if your employer gives you a $10,000 bonus that year as wage income, okay? And so that's the way you can design these things to you know, have optimal tax treatment. Many people do things like that. Okay, so again, I'm not giving tax advice. I'm just trying to show you how these things work and how people use them in practice. And you can, again, go to infinitebanking.org slash finder if you want to talk to somebody about your own situation. But here, just giving you the theoretical treatment just to explain the principles behind it. The last thing I will say on this very quickly now we're in a position is this last point where Dave Ramsey says, oh, and you know what else is fishy about all this? is the life insurance company keeps your cash value, or sorry, yeah, they keep the cash value and just give you the death benefit when you die. Well, what the cash value is, if you want to think about it, it's like the, the present value of that looming future death benefit. It's the anticipation of it. And so, of course, if you happen to die, you just get the full death benefit. And the analogy I use is, suppose you have a 30-year mortgage on a house. And every month when you make your mortgage payment, the equity that you have in the house goes up, right? And you know your, your CPA or somebody tells you every year when they do your taxes, oh, by the way, now you have this much equity in your house. Now you have this much equity in your house because you keep making your mortgage payments. Oh, okay, great. And then finally, after the thir you know, 30th year comes and goes and you make that last mortgage payment, now you own the house free and clear. You go to the bank and you say, give me the deed to the house. I paid off the mortgage. They said, there you go, sir. Let's say the house is worth 300000 There you go, sir. There's, there's your house. You say, okay, thank you. And um, please give me my check for $300,000. You say, what are you talking about? You say, oh yeah, my accountant told me that because now I've completely paid off the mortgage, the equity I have in my house is 300,000. So go ahead and give me that. I want that equity too. And obviously the people at the bank would say, no, what your accountant meant was you now own the house free and clear. That's the $300,000 asset. You don't get the equity on top of that. That doesn't even make any sense. That's what the equity is. So likewise, what the cash surrender value is, that's kind of saying like, if you stop early, you're only going to get a partial payment reflecting what that death benefit would be if you had waited around until you actually died. And so that's why the cash surrender value is always less than the death benefit, okay? And so if you happen to die though, you're just going to get the death benefit period. You wouldn't get the cash value on top of that. That misunderstands what the cash surrender value is. All right? And then, so to say that is as goofy is someone saying, oh, you know, the commercial banks don't ever take out a mortgage because uh, when you pay that mortgage off, you might think you're getting the uh, equity, but you're not. They just give you the deed to the house. They don't give you the equity too. They keep the equity. What? Right? That's how goofy it is. So again, I'll stop here. I know this episode has been running along at this point. Big picture is Dave Ramsey does not really understand whole life insurance policies and when he constantly tells people how dumb it is to invest in them, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Okay, so I haven't here made the case for why you should invest in them or buy them or use them, but I am trying to show you Dave Ramsey's critique. You don't need to worry about it. And that's a partly also why I included that earlier clip just to show you this isn't the first time he's been confidently wrong and mocking people for doing something he disagrees with. So if you do want to see what the case for whole life is, and in particular, IBC. So IBC is a strategy or a principle or a concept 
that's built on a platform of a whole life policy, then I'll point you to the book that I did with, wrote with Carlos and, and Nelson and David Stearns helped as well called The Case for IBC. And you can go to the video series available at infinitebanking.org slash foundations. And the last thing, again, if you want to talk to somebody to help you look at how IBC would, would work in your life or with your business, go to infinitebanking.org slash finder. For all the links about what I talked to on this episode or talked about on this episode, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 168. I'll wrap it up there. Thanks for your attention, everybody. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.